Welcome to Famous Lost Words. This is season number six, ladies and gentlemen, episode one. And boy, have we got some good stuff for you today. Um, Tom, this is, I can't believe we've gone this long. It's amazing. And we're still talking to each other. It's fantastic. Exactly. <laughs> and I can't believe you've gone this long without introducing yourself. It's Christopher Ward. That's you. And I'm Tom <laughs> Jokic. That's me. This is Season 6, Episode 1, and that's the good news. The sad news is that we are doing a tribute to Eddie Van Halen, who we lost just a few weeks ago. Some great stories to tell about Eddie's gift, his history, his trials and tribulations as a kid, including his experience with racism, and we'll explain more about that. We also have um, some great stories about him, and I have the most embarrassing personal Eddie Van Halen story. The stars of the story are Eddie Van Halen, Valerie Bertinelli, and me. And it Whoa. is not good. And we were all within <laughs> six feet of each other. Okay. I, now, I haven't heard this story, so I'm You I'm have ready. not heard this story. No. <laughs> and, and, and Tom, I, I have to say off the top here, I know what a big fan of this band you are. And I yes. know that you uh, will bring a certain passion to telling this story today. Absolutely. Eddie Van Halen and Ben Van Halen meant a great deal to me, particularly through those first four or five albums. I just loved them. I loved every note on every album. And of course, there are some real throwaway songs for sure. And that's one of the reasons why Eddie and Dave had the falling out that they did, which caused David Lee Roth to leave the band. But anyway, more of that yet to come. But not only that, Christopher, what else do we have? We have someone that I have been waiting to hear from for a long time. He's very quiet. He's subdued in his delivery, but so fascinating for people like me who love Roy Orbison. That's true. And Roy Orbison, of course, the connection between Roy Orbison and Van Halen is that Van Halen had a huge hit with Pretty Woman from 19, I would say, 81, 82 from the Diver Down album when they covered Pretty Woman. All right. That's all to come on Famous Lost Words, Season 6, Episode 1. Let's get started with Van Halen. From 1978, wow, Van Halen ain't talking about love from their debut album. And you can hear Eddie Van Halen's brilliance in those first few seconds right there. When that first Van Halen came out that year, 1978, it blew the doors off of everything else that was happening, and this was a virtuoso guitarist who seemed to descend from another planet. And the music, hmm. it was dark, it was gloomy, it was bright and joyful, it was all those things. And this was before David Lee Roth grew too kind of big for his spandex, and, <laughs> and he got... <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to touch that, you, but carry on. <laughs> And, you know, he became a little more clownish the more they went on, and he was always a bigger-than-life frontman, for sure. So we'll talk more about Eddie in a few minutes, including my most embarrassing Eddie story. But first, a little history. Tom, Eddie Van Halen heard his brother Alex play the drum solo in Wipeout and decided <laughs> that the thing he had to do was give his drums to Alex. I think Perfect. this worked out very, very well for rock and roll. They formed their first band when Eddie was in grade four. They were called the Broken Combs. The band eventually became Van Halen officially in 1974, got themselves a record deal with Warner in 77. 80 million copies of records sold followed and a spot in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It is an understatement. 
to say that Eddie was one of the most influential and highly regarded guitarists ever. Brian May of Queen called him, quote, probably the most original and dazzling guitarist in rock history. I mean, does the praise get any bigger than that? Wow, that's something. And here's one that, that was surprising to me. In 2012, Guitar World magazine named him number one on its list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Well, that is very interesting, Christopher, because, you know, often Jimi Hendrix is regarded as the greatest guitarist of all time. Absolutely. And I would yeah. say in, in the rock era, especially in the era where the rock guitar was kind of played in a different way, in a, in a free-form, wild, you know, with a, with a sense of reckless abandon, I think Jimi was the guy for that. But, you know, when you, when you hear about Eddie's technique and when you hear the effect that it had and when you hear other guitarists analyze Eddie's guitar work, you can see why they would say that. Now, you can also hear why perhaps older rock and rollers and older rock and roll fans would say, well, wait a minute, like Jimmy was the originator of that kind of style. But there's no arguing the fact that he was a wildly talented guy. Well, I think with Hendrix, you have to allow, too, that, you know, the with the experience notwithstanding, he was essentially a solo act, whereas yeah, yeah. Eddie's playing was part of the overall Van Halen experience. And it's a different role, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, for sure. At any rate, uh, the, the New York Times in the obituary said, and they always say Mr., Mr. Van Halen structured his solos the way Macy's choreographs its Independence Day fireworks show shooting huh. off rockets of sound that seem to explode in a shower of light and color. <laughs> so, wow. There you well get it from done. The, the straight press, from the gray lady, yeah. as they call the times. That's right. You know, so I had to do lots of digging to find some Van Halen audio, and I did. We Yay. have Dave, we have Alex, and we have Michael, but alas, we have no Eddie. Nevertheless, lots to discuss regarding Eddie, but first, let's have a listen to the audio that we do have. Okay. Tom, in this first clip, Alex Van Halen and bassist Michael Anthony talk about the life of a rock star. Quite honestly, it's, it's, you're kind of living in the gray. You know? You're not really in the studio or out of the studio or on the road or off the road because um, playing music and, and traveling and whatnot is a lifestyle. It's not a thing that you say. You know, there's a lot of people who will walk up on stage, they'll play and uh, be the craziest guy you ever seen in your life. And then as soon as they get off stage, they got the three kids, the wife, the uh, the car with the little phony plastic stuff on the side and whatnot. Even during the recording process, when we record the albums, Dave will jump around and, and uh, you know, it almost got to one point where we were going to take our lighting system into the studio just for the hell of it. Because a lot of people have asked us, um, when are you going to do a live album? And what it basically amounts to is each Van Halen album is practically live because we do play together. If we don't get it first, second, or third take, uh, then we just don't do it. We all get in one room, and Dave, of course, will be separated in another smaller, in another we use different isolation booth. Video. Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> but we all we all play live in the studio, and we actually have a, basically the same equipment that we play live on stage with too. <laughs> I know. I love the con the concept of bringing lights into the studio. To me, is genius. <laughs> I just, like, why not have, like, smoke pots going off, too, right? I mean, I suppose exactly. it could be a fire hazard, but aside from that. Yeah. Uh, What's the worst <laughs> that could happen, you know? <laughs> so I'm guessing this interview is from early the early 1980s, and you can tell that they love to get goofy during their interviews. But it is funny. I don't know if I've heard Alex Van Halen speak that much, and he sounds surprisingly lucid considering all the things I've read about him during this era including the uh, the book uh, Running with the Devil by the manager of Van Halen at the time. And boy, there was a lot to be said 
about everybody's experience with Van Halen at that time and the wildlife that they led. Well, the man and the myth here. I mean, Alex goes on and he talks about the song selection process. When we get together, Ed and Dave will get together and they'll come up with some kind of musical idea and then um, Mike and I will sit on, on with it. And uh, then finally, when it gets down to it, we play the stuff for Ted, who has a real critical, uh, unbiased ear. Ted and right Templeman. off the bat, right, yeah. Ted Templeman. And uh, right off the bat, he will say, this one's good, this one, eh, you know, that kind of thing. Because this album, as with the other ones, uh, was the songs were selected out of maybe 50 songs that had been written. Returning to the myth, now they address the legendary Brown M&M story. What it amounted to is that um, Brown M&M's just have no aesthetic value. If we ever catch one anywhere backstage, we're going to beat the <clears throat> out of it. You still have that in your rider. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah for, those, for those people who don't know what a rider is, a rider is something that um, you send ahead of you before you get to the show so that you can have, like you ask for a chair so you can sit down. You ask for one chair, but you better be specific because if you don't you say... for five chairs so you can get two. Well, right. plus, we, plus we also feel like we're adding the, the economy of the uh, nation too because the promoter has to hire somebody and pay them to take the brown M&Ms right. out. So we're, cre we're actually creating jobs for people right. too. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> okay, so yeah. they are laughing just a little bit too hard at that. Mm -hmm. Kind of wondering what's happening behind the scenes there and what they may have imbibed just before going on mic. But I just want to acknowledge the guy who gets the least credit for the sound of Van Halen, and he's in that clip, probably the one laughing l like a fool, and that is Michael Anthony. <laughs> he played bass, and he did it well. But, you know, his real legacy to the band was those incredible high harmonies, and I don't think he's been appreciated enough. Here's an example. From 1979, that's Dance the Night Away and Van Halen, and then Michael Anthony on High Harmonies. So, Tom, how highly regarded was Michael as a musician? You know what? I, I haven't seen that much in the way of appreciation for him. And also, he was definitely the outsider of the group. He um, worked, you know, very hard to be one of the guys. But the difference between him and the other guys is, quite frankly, it seems that Michael Anthony was fairly normal, and he didn't partake on the road in a lot of the stuff, um, including the interaction with fans, if I may use a euphemism. And he just wanted to he just wanted to fit in, and he was often quite bullied uh, by the other guys, particularly David Lee Roth. And so it's interesting. You don't hear much about his playing, but his playing was good. Like at the beginning of Running with the Devil, just those pounding kind of throbbing bass notes and all of the stuff that he did he was certainly very very competent and actually probably quite good but i don't think he's held in high regard the way eddie is on his instrument well but maybe that's the point is that a virtuoso yeah. like eddie needs somebody who's just going to hold down the bottom the way that michael that's anthony right. does yeah well the funny thing is is michael anthony held down the bottom but he also held up the top with those harmonies, and those Ooh, are what gave the sweetness nice. of their music. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes oh, they just yeah. come to me, and sometimes they work. Just ahead on Famous Lost Words, more from Van Halen, along with Roy Orbison. By the way, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget there are precisely 81 previous episodes of Famous Lost Words to binge on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Included in that bunch is Stevie Nicks talking about writing one of the biggest hits from last year, 
<laughs> Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, thanks to the viral video of the guy on the skateboard and the cranberry juice. That's episode 508. You can also hear Chris Martin of Coldplay just having a riot talking to us in 2005. That's episode 201. Plus, a very rowdy Rod Stewart chat in episode 213. If you're a Beatles fan, we have segments in nine different episodes. So much to choose from with Famous Lost Words. Back in a sec. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we remember Eddie Van Halen. Christopher, I still have to tell you my most embarrassing Eddie story about my encounter with Eddie and Valerie Bertinelli. But first, let's switch things over to David Lee Roth. Oh, all right. I'm going to leave the room now. Dave should only be taken in small doses. And we have featured these previously in a series we called The Wisdom of Dave in Mm. Season 1 and part of Season 2. And we'll just play just a few of them this time around because while they are entertaining, as I said, they can be a bit much when they're all heard together. Christopher? All right. Here's the one that gives me nightmares. Dave talks about the cover of their album, 1984. Well, the cover symbolizes Van Halen. It's the little angel boy with a palm mall in his right hand, you know. And uh, I, I can tell you what 1984 means to me, myself, personally. And that is at exactly a quarter to midnight, I'm going to undo the button on my designer jeans with the Italian surname, and I'm going to loosen the string on my French sunglasses, you know, that you use for skiing, and I'm going to plug my all-new waterproof Walkman headphones into my compact disc player, and I'm going to tune in the stereo hookup for the cable channel that shows rock video, and at the stroke of 12, I'm going to aerobicize. Oh, Dave, what a long, strange journey that was. Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Carrying on, he talks about their biggest hit, the song Jump, and then he opines about other bands selling out. It's the first tune that we've done completely on synthesizers, and that's sort of new for Van Halen. It's not instead of. It's in addition to the sound that came before. So many times you get the fat cat manager in the five-piece suit with the gold watch chain, and he sits back and says, boys, I need some more gas for the yacht. You've got to sound more like Journey. You know, and a lot of bands will rush right out and buy up all the records, all the old Eagles records, and all the old Doobie Brothers records, and all the old so-and-so's records, and they'll listen to it with a fine-tooth comb, put it under the microscope, and go, ah, I know how to sing now. You know, like that. It's not necessarily what they really want to do, but I guess it puts gas in the bends, you know? That's where a lot of musicians are coming from and headed for the Mercedes-Benz store. Jump from 1984, their biggest hit and a real change of direction for the band as Eddie Van Halen fully threw himself into learning keyboards and synths. And he did learn piano as a kid, but was also one of those guys who loved to noodle with any instrument and could master it quickly. And I know perhaps um, uh, this might be a bit of a stretch, but you know someone else who was really good at just literally picking up an instrument, going into a room by himself for half an hour, and then walking out having mastered that instrument to a degree in which he could play it with some proficiency and a lot of passion, and that was Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. Eddie was a little bit like that, perhaps not to the same degree. Well, and it did help them get to the Mercedes-Benz store, as Dave says. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Um, Dave addresses the rigors of rehearsal. I'd just like to clear the air right now in that, you know, Van Halen's been together probably about nine years, handful of years before we started making records, another handful since then. And in that whole time, say nine, ten years, quite seriously, you know, I always make jokes and I always laugh about it, you know, and paint this glorious picture. But in fact, Van Halen has rehearsed, recorded, practiced, actually worked on the material at least, I'd say three, maybe four or five hours. <laughs> okay, that that's actually kind of funny. Okay, so at this point, you can hear how being on the road with David Lee Roth would have been fun to a point. But he was like this all the time. And it got to the point where he would want to have band meetings every day to dissect and discuss the concert from the night before. And it was totally tortuous to the other guys in the band to the point where Eddie Van Halen wanted to actually quit the band that bore his name. But he was talked out of it. He was talked out of it, I think, by, by another rock star um, who said, dude, you can't leave your own band. Right? <laughs> you know, hang in there. <laughs> that's right. The band has to leave you. It's the only way that this is going to work. Uh, that's right. Okay, so I have to ask, what's wrong with discussing the previous night's concert? Well, he was pretty brutal in his assessment of everyone else but himself. Oh. Imagine what we just heard, and imagine that going on for an hour and a half. No, okay, I take it yeah. back. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, here Dave talks about how fame leads to slothfulness. Now that Edward has a little studio in his backyard, we have even more excuse not to accomplish anything. You know, we can sit around and, you know, people don't understand, you know, life uh, does, in fact, get much easier. The more money you make, the more popular the band becomes and so forth. You have a lot more excuses for not accomplishing anything. Like, for instance, now we have 16 and 24 track machines that don't work today, so we just better sit around and discuss it. And now we have guitar roadies and drum roadies and bass roadies who don't show up. It's not just the guitar player and the bass player anymore who doesn't show up to rehearsal or anything. It's the guitar roadie and the bass roadie. And of course, if they don't show up, then we have another excuse to sit around and talk about cars. <laughs> okay, Dave. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, here's a classic topic. He's talking about inspiration versus theft. Oh, I like all kinds of music. And then I steal from everybody. Inspiration does not, the hand of God does not descend through the ceiling while you lay on your bed and point a big massive finger at you and say, here, Joe, have an idea. It doesn't go like that. You have to steal it from somebody and then you take it home and you learn it just the way it is. Then you say, well, I think I'm going to change the beginning. Since I changed the beginning, you know, why don't I change the end? And since I changed the beginning and the end, you know I got a better idea for the middle. Hey, come on, you know, Beatles schmeels. So you go ahead and you change the middle, and by the time you wheel it out on stage, you know, or onto a record, put it on plastic, nobody recognizes it. In fact, you don't even recognize it yourself after the eighth time you've played it or sang it. That's where inspiration comes from. So, Christopher, I actually like that clip, because for as crass as Dave is, he actually describes a fairly common songwriting technique there. 
And Christopher, you and I have debated, debated the value of Van Halen's music, and I know I'm more of a fan than you are, but I think that Dave wrote pretty good lyrics, especially the darker stuff like Running with the Devil, Mean Streets, Push Comes to Shove, and I think they matched up with Eddie's music so well. But even the really up-tempo stuff like Dance the Night Away, Beautiful Girls, that was just out-and-out out fun. And remember, I was a teenager when these songs came out, and they sounded great and they felt great. And yes, Dave became more and more of a clown, and it showed in some of his stuff. And he always wanted to do cover versions, which Eddie did not want to do. And you can see how Dave's solo career didn't amount to much because he didn't have the heft of Eddie's music to ground him. What are you saying, that Just a Gigolo is not a classic song? I mean, (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, and you and I have talked about this before, is that Just a Gigolo was a note-for-note, ad-lib-for-ad-lib cover of a Louis Prima song. So when you hear Just a Gigolo, you go, oh my God, that's fun, that's great. And then you hear the original and you go, gee, Dave, like, did you just learn every single breath from that and then just copy it? Because there's something less far less impressive about that than if he'd been the one who was doing the boys de boys de bop diddy bop like that whole stuff like that's fun (laughs) but that's louis prima right prima was the master at that and i didn't know until i went back and heard louis original that dave just literally ripped it off virtually note for note Okay, so of course the other legacy of Van Halen was that they were the template for all of the 80s hair bands that came after them. Especially, you know, they were typically a a guitarist with some great talent and a big-haired lead singer and lots of songs about girls, girls, girls. And those bands (laughs) never rang true for me like like Van Halen did, but I know there are a a lot of people who are big fans of that era. You're saying you're, you're not a crouton? Is that what you're saying? No, I am not. It took me a second to even know what a crouton was there. But yes, I figured that out. You know, there are moments when um, when I saw the Motley Crue uh, documentary, The Dirt, and I know that's, you know, it's just, it's an over-the-top telling of a story. But I kind of began to appreciate them just a little bit more, but I've, I was never into any of those bands. The only band that eventually made a splash with me in terms of the honesty of their music um, that may have been influenced by Van Halen was Guns N' Roses, because I think they had they brought something else to it that wasn't just show-offy, um, even though they had a great presence and they had great characters in their group or that you could visually see, Slash with the top hat, you know, Axel with his, you know, antics and his voice. But I think that they were, they were a more honest band than some of the hair bands were. Yeah, I'm not sure that a guitarist with great talent and a big-haired singer is enough, because by that description, Led Zeppelin are a hair band. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I, I've heard the teenager in you coming out fantastically here today. This is good. You sure have. Okay, still much more to come, including more memories about Eddie Van Halen and my slightly embarrassing story of me and Eddie and Valerie Bertinelli. Famous Lost Words is heard in 31 countries worldwide and on radio stations across Canada. If you'd like to promote your business to thousands of music lovers, think about sponsoring our show. To find out more, email us, famouslostpod at gmail.com. That's famouslostpod at gmail.com. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, as we remember Eddie Van Halen. Okay, so let's tell a few more Van Halen stories. First of all, I didn't really know this, but Eddie and Alex Van Halen were actually mixed race. Their mother was Indonesian, and that caused a lot of problems in Holland, where they grew up. So... 
They moved to the States, and they were treated horribly in school. And they said that they were bullied by the white kids, and it was the black kids who stood up for them. So that was very interesting, something I didn't know until after Eddie had passed away. Um, in 1978, this is a typical Van Halen story, and I actually like this one a lot. So Van Halen playing Summerfest in Anaheim, California, 1978. Just before they were start, they're about ready to start their set, a low-flying plane flies over the stadium and four guys jump out of the plane. The announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, Van Halen. Okay, and these guys drift to the ground and they land backstage. Of course, it wasn't Van Halen. It was four <laughs> stunt guys. They land backstage, and the guys from Van Halen run on stage dressed as though they were the parachutists. Yeah. Needless to say, the crowd went bananas. That's a funny story. That's really good. I <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm, I'm right there for that one. That's, that's fantastic. That's great. And Christopher, you have a story too. Well, when Eddie told his manager that he was going to play lead guitar on Beat It by Michael Jackson, the song from Thriller, his manager told him to at least try to get a point or a half a point in royalties, but Eddie didn't want to do it. He liked Michael too much and he wanted to do it for free. So he probably walked away from a lot of dough. He also rearranged the song. And by the way, several people who were in the studio during Eddie's solo said that while he was playing, one of the studio speakers burst into flames. An, apoc- an apocryphal tale, ladies and gentlemen, perhaps. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about it, is it possible, and I'm going to say something that's just completely um, uh, horrific to, to Van Halen fans, but is it possible that Eddie is best known for that moment in time when he did the solo on Beat It? Um, well, I think that what it did is that definitely broadened his audience and made him more well-known. But... But no, I don't think that's that's what he's best known for, simply because of the body of work. And honestly, like even the video for Jump, like Jump wasn't my favorite song. To me, I liked more, you know, guitar than I did, than I did synth. But right. just that video for Jump, that was huge. And that's that song and that album went to number one, sold millions. And I think that because he ha- they had enough hits that he's known for just being a great guitarist. And then there's that cool thing that he also yeah. played on Beat It. I think you're right, and I put it the wrong way. I guess I was thinking just in terms of if you had to pick a moment out of his career that would be known by the most number of people, that's kind of what yeah. I meant. But, you know, you make a very good case. I do particularly remember how beloved the video for Jump was as we played it to, to death on Much. Okay, let's finish this off just before I tell my story about Eddie Van Halen. A cool song fact, the song I'll Wait, which was actually the follow-up for Jump, was a hit for Van Halen in 1984 from that album, and it was co-written by Michael McDonald? You don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you can see the connection. Michael McDonald with the Doobie Brothers, and uh, they were produced by Ted Templeman, and Ted Templeman produced Van Halen. So I think what happened is the ah. song was partly written. They couldn't quite finish it. Ted calls up Mike, says, Mike, can you come in here, tweak this song? He did. He gets a co-writing credit. Okay, wow. so I'm going to tell you my Van Halen story. Please. It's about 1983, I think, and I'm DJing in a club in Toronto called Davy C's. Now, Davy C's is more of a bar than a club. And many nights, I'm just providing background music to all the people who are there. But there is a bit of a dance floor. And I I am kind of known when I DJ as a, as a DJ who does not stand still when he 
when he plays music. So if <laughs> okay. I happen to like the song, there's a very good chance that I'm either going to be up on the stage or in the DJ area going nuts myself, or oh. I'm going to be on the dance floor. So this was oh, not oh unusual my. for me. Right. So I see, and you know, in this club, Davy C's bit corner of Bay and Elm, downtown Toronto. You know, I'm working my shift, and in walk Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Bertinelli, and they sit at a table right beside the dance floor. And I <laughs> lose my mind. And what I do is I think I play their cover of Dancing in the Street from the album Diver Down because it's a really good dance song. And I went out there, and honestly, Christopher, I have no idea if there was anybody else on the dance floor, but I went out there and I danced like my life depended on it. And I was literally three feet away doing like twirls right wow. in front of Eddie and Val. And in <laughs> hindsight, it's funny, I'd forgotten all about that story. I'd forgotten yeah. all about it until Eddie's passing. But then I remembered that it happened and how happy I was in that moment to be in the same room with Valerie Bertinelli, who I liked from one day at a Ooh. time, and especially from Eddie Van Halen. And I do remember that they kind of looked at each other in a bemused fashion while I was going berserk on the dance floor. Wow. And I'm embarrassed by that fact, but I got to tell you, even though I am embarrassed, I was very, very happy in that moment. And it was great. I'm so glad that I got to, quote unquote, meet him and that he got to see me, even, he, <laughs> even if he thought like, who's this kid, right? <laughs> so there you go. I, I detect more than a tiny little note of pride in this moment. Uh, but you know what? You're entitled to it. I mean, it's let's face it, death does um, bring back a lot of repressed memories. And um, yes, this is one of them. <laughs> no kidding, huh? No kidding. Anyway, Yikes. there you go. There are so many things to be said about Eddie Van Halen. There's so much, like there's some great videos on YouTube of him in his home studio and you can tell that really what he wants to do is just be in his studio and play things and just experiment and and have fun and he did like touring and trust me he took full advantage of you know the rock star excess thing but he also was a guy who was just as happy sitting on his bed and playing his guitar or learning a new instrument or working on keyboard parts or that kind of thing like he would have been happy just recording maybe playing a few shows and then going back and noodling and finding more riffs and things to work on. He was a true musician. Eddie yeah. Van Halen, he will be missed, and he certainly died much too young to the surprise of many just a few weeks ago at the age of 65. We want to bring in a special guest now. He's a legendary Toronto broadcaster. His name is John Donaby. Christopher, you know him well, and I know him by his great work at two of the biggest radio stations in Canada. Hey, John. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Thomas. How are you both? Excellent. Really a pleasure to be here with both of you. And Christopher, I've known for, uh, I don't want to say how many years, but a long time. A couple of months, right, mm -hmm. at least? Mm -hmm. A couple of months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, John, in this episode, we are looking back at the uh, life and um, career of Eddie Van Halen and the influence that he had. And I know that you have an Eddie Van Halen story, and Christopher and I would love if you were to share that with us right now. Yes, uh, it was uh, March of 1978, and Van Halen had come to town to do Massey Hall. They would come back later, but this was Massey Hall. Uh, we got a call that the interview was going to happen during drive time, and I was pretty excited about that. And um, they were across the street at McDonald's at Grenville and Young, 
and they got thrown out of there. Uh, they were causing an awful lot of uh, noise. And yeah. um, then they said they were on their way up. So I put on a long record. No such thing as uh, CDs yet for yet another year. I think it was 1984 when the CDs came out. Anyway, I come out of the elevator. or They come out of the elevator, but I'm already standing there at the doorway and screaming and yelling and laughing and zany bunch of California guys. And they happen to be gliding down the hallway. And we're all kind of looking at this going, what are they? They're not roller skates. And they were on rollerblades. Now, no, wow. whoop, no big whoop today. <laughs> but then this was like a California sensation. I'd never seen a pair of rollerblades. Eddie was very, very good at it, as was uh, David Lee Roth. <laughs> The craziest, I think, of them all. And they came out. Uh, Eddie was a true gentleman, a wonderful guy, came up, smiled. And I said, hi, I'm John Donovan. And he said, oh, really nice to meet you. And his brother, Alex, of course, and uh, Michael. And uh, I think last but not least, David Lee Roth. He was kind of consumed with it, whatever he was doing. And we talked for a while in the hallway. Uh, didn't go over any guy. They didn't give me any guide rules about the interview which was nice. I have had a couple of those happen in my life. But uh, anyway, um, they, we walked and talked and got ourselves into the control room. They were so into each other, so compact, great respect. They, had a, they laughed a lot. And of course, later, I would never get to talk to them again. But, um, you know, they, they obviously went on to bigger and better things after I met them, that's for sure. Well, thanks very much, John, for joining us for this edition of Famous Lost Words as we remember the legacy of Eddie Van Halen. My pleasure. Next up, some great archival clips from the late Roy Orbison on his unlikely climb to the top and how $8 changed his life. Pretty woman walking down the street, pretty woman. From 1964, Roy Orbison and Pretty Woman. What a great song. What a classic song. Tom, Roy Orbison was a star of the first magnitude in the early 60s, but like so many of his contemporaries, saw his career diminished dramatically by the British invasion. Now, ironically, when he was asked to go on tour with a new British phenomenon, it was the Big O, as he was known, who received a rapturous response as the opening act for The Beatles. A friendship formed in that tour and uh, was the basis for Orbison being asked over 20 years later to join the Traveling Wilburys with George Harrison, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, and Jeff Lynne, who became the producer of Roy's last album, the triumphant comeback Mystery Girl. Now, Roy's was a life that was marred by personal tragedy, and he died at age 52. He was shy on stage. Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing to think, isn't it, that he accomplished all that he did. Um, Mm -hmm. He was shy on stage, hiding behind his dark glasses, and standing almost immobile as he performed. This interview reveals the modesty of the man who was idolized by so many artists who grew up listening to him. Roy talks about appearing on radio talent shows at the very beginning of his career. So bear with us because the sound quality is not great on this one, but it's pretty short and the content is great. It was actually a uh, more or less a Saturday afternoon talent show. And I showed up with such regularity that they made me part of the show. And then a talent contest when I was 10 years old. And uh, 
I won half of the prize. After playing one of these school things and all, I might stop by the drugstore. It was a very small town. Someone asked me to sing, so I sang a few songs, and they passed the hat around. So one Christmas, I went to a neighbor's house, and they wanted me to sing for them. And uh, I sang a few songs, and they passed the hat, and I think I made $8. And uh, that was astronomical, because I'd never seen over... 25 cents in my life. That's amazing. Such a humble start for a guy who would become such a huge star. And to make any money, he had to pass the hat. So, Tom, this is odd, but when Roy finally decided he was going to quit, the hits began. I was with Sun Records for a year, uh, from 56, 57, and uh, I wasn't get to getting to record the things I wanted to, or the way I wanted them recorded, and no communication uh, with the owner owner producer so I just quit for a year and uh, the, the year that I quit I wrote a song so I didn't quit uh, doing what I'd always done I wrote a song called Claudette which the Ever Everly Brothers took on a tour we were in Indiana they asked me did I they came up to me and said do you have any songs that we could record I said I only have one song period so I let them have the song and within two or three months it had earned uh, thousands of dollars and sold two or three million records and made enough money for me to make a move to Tennessee from Texas. So uh, everything is by chance, really. I, did, I quit the business, wrote this song. Someone asked me to come and play a show in Indiana and the Everly Brothers happened to be on it. I borrowed money to go play the show and uh, didn't make any money. I was paid and paid back what I borrowed. But I uh, accidentally bumped into the Everleys and uh, had a number one record around the world just because of that. So I think just being involved in the business, if you've got it, uh, they can't keep it, uh, you know, uh, from you very long. You know, so many performers got their career started when they first had success as songwriters. That applies to Roy Orbison, and it applied, for example, 50 years later when Lady Gaga was writing songs for Beyonce and Britney just before she had enough courage and money to strike out as a solo artist. So she found her initial success that way, the same way Roy Orbison did. And I thought she got over her stage fright very nicely. So, <laughs> um, Okay, so this next clip is from a completely different interview, as you'll hear. Roy describes his early days at Sun Records with some pretty notable contemporaries. When I first uh, came to Memphis for Sun, uh, Elvis had just left uh, Sun Records. And Carl Perkins had a giant record with blue suede shoes. Johnny Cash was going strong. And I cut a record called Ooby Dooby. And all of these things were, uh, were our interpretations of what rock and roll should be. And uh, there could have been some country influence in it. I don't know how much. But the, uh, the style was called rockabilly for some reason or the other. But it was what we thought was uh, pure rhythm and blues. And the recording session for Only the Lonely was uh, arranged by uh, Anita Kerr, and uh, I used, uh, in the voices, I used a fellow who helped me write the song, Joe Melson, and he also uh, did a few of the uh, Dum Dum Dumby Doo Wives, and it was my first uh, super big record. It was uh, number one here, number one in England, uh, around the world, sold about two or three million. And uh, we thought we had something at the session. 
I was uh, very excited, and uh, if, a, if an artist ever knows that he has a hit record, well, I knew that I had one then. Only the lonely From 1960, oh wow, that is so great. Only the Lonely by Roy Orbison. Great story about that song. I love that song. That was the first Roy Orbison song I heard on the radio. Once you've heard that voice, it just stays with you forever. So here's a great story about opening for this new sensation called The Beatles. Yeah, well, it was in uh, it was in England, and uh, they had co-billing with me on the show because they had opened the show for... Uh, a Chris Montez tour and Tommy Rowe, and then they closed the first half of the show on the second tour they were on. Then they wanted to close this one, and uh, we were talking to each other. And they said, "Look, let's face it. You're getting all the money. Why not let us close the show?" So I said, "Okay, it'll be all right." And uh, I was getting more money than they were, twice as much as they were, but it wasn't all that much anyway. And uh, so we we did tour, and I think I had on opening night I had 14 encores before the uh, Beatles could get on stage, and uh, they didn't have well they had a rough time of it for the first four or five minutes after after I came off stage, they were still shouting we we want Roy we want Roy, but after that then it was all their show so. That tour in 63, I think, made the Beatles and me internationally. Such a great story. So mm-hmm. let's hear that same story from the point of view of an actual Beatle. Okay, this is a bonus cut where George Harrison talks about the Beatles closing for Roy. We did another tour straight away after that where we were top with Roy Orbison. And Roy Orbison did the spot right before us and then we had to close. Roy Or- Orbison, incidentally, would just kill everybody. He was the hardest person ever to follow. You know, that's even when it was Beatlemania. Great stuff. You can tell that the Beatles were big fans of Roy Orbison, and they were definitely in awe of his talent. That does it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can get caught up on past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Got a favorite artist from the past? Check in with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and let us know. If we can find them in our archives, there's a very good chance we can feature them on the show. Special thanks to Adam Karsh and a shout out to our special guest this week, John Donovan. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Talk to you next time.